0: So hi, everybody. We're just going to wait a few more minutes to let people a chance to log in. And uh, we'll start at 2. So see you guys at 2. So welcome everybody, today is Tuesday, January the 25th and on Tuesdays we have Mr. Dwoskin presenting his in the headline lecture series. So let's all welcome Mr. Dwoskin, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Angela. Well, hi everybody, I'm so glad to um, be with you again. I'm so glad we didn't have any of the technical difficulties of last week because uh, as frustrating as it was for you, it was the same for me trying to kind of get myself um, Uh, hooked up to to the network, so to speak. I have two subjects today. I'm not sure how long I'll be able to speak about uh, both of them, but we'll we'll see. Um, Because of all the tensions in the world going on now uh, between Russia and the West over um, a possible invasion of the Ukraine, I thought I would just speak a little bit or uh, devote a good part of the time to talking about the Ukraine um, because it is uh, in some ways a typical country in Eastern Europe, in some ways it's a unique uh, country in Eastern Europe. In some ways it's a country, in some ways it isn't a country. Um, And of course, for those of us who are of Eastern European descent, um, it's not unlikely that some of our uh, ancestors or forebears came from territory which, um, which uh, was once part of the Ukraine. So um, yeah, the, uh, that's the sort of introduction to today. Um, Ukraine is, is uh, unlike many countries in Europe in that um, it only actually became an independent country in 1991, which is um, obviously like 30 years ago. Although as a sort of um, national entity uh, with sort of a national identity, um, it uh, has la- it's existed for well over a thousand years. So unlike a country like Spain, or France or England, uh, or, which have long-lasting, and long-standing national identities going back into the Middle Ages. Um, the Ukraine, in a way, is a kind of a, a modern creation, um, a 20th century creation, uh, the, based on a kind of um, uh, an ethnic uh, identity, which has its roots, Back in the Middle Ages. Well, that's a kind of a kind of a short, sort of a short brief um, introduction to this uh, uh, subject. Um, you may not realize it, but the Ukraine has a, a population today of 41 million, which is bigger than Canada's population. So, I mean, it is a country which um, is quite significant in terms of its both geographical size and of its population size. But although I just said a population was 41 million, um, when the Ukraine became independent, this population was 50 million. So it's actually lost about 20% of its people um, since independence uh, due mainly to out-migration and to a low birth rate. And you, some of you may know that uh, like it's sort of sister Eastern European countries, uh, say Romania and Bulgaria um, and Moldova, uh, this same problem exists in those countries whereby the population is going down instead of going up. The number of people being born is fewer than the number of people dying and uh, many young people have left for better jobs uh, elsewhere. Um, to give, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, sort of just quickly brushing through the history of this of this place. Uh, first of all, for those of you who who may not be exactly so sure where the Ukraine is, it is a country which is surrounded, uh, which is bordered by Russia on the east side, by Belarus on the north side, uh, by Romania on the south side. Um, by Poland on the west side, Uh, so that's basically where it's centered, it's kind of, we'll call it, in Eastern Europe. Um, It has a kind of an important middle ground, we'll say, between Poland on the one hand, which is in the EU, and Russia on the other hand, which is, uh, of course, its own superpower uh, country. The Ukraine also has a coastline on the Black Sea, and uh, at one time it was the um, uh, owner of the Crimean Peninsula, which is a very prominent geographical um, uh, peninsula on the Black Sea, but no longer. It it still does have a coastline on the Black Sea, however. Um, Kiev is the capital of the Ukraine. And Kiev is the sort of center of Ukrainian uh, identity and the center of the identity of the people who lived there uh, a thousand years ago. So uh, in the, in, in the around the year a thousand, uh, this sort of group of peoples living together identified themselves as Kievan Rus. And Rus is, was sort of the name of one of the tribes, which became, the root of the word Russia. Uh, So in a certain sense, the sort of name Russia really uh, originated in the Ukraine. Um, They uh, converted to Christianity uh, around that same time, meaning around the year 1000, uh, maybe a bit before then. And it was the Christianity brought to them by the Orthodox um, church people coming out of Istanbul. So um, like Russia, the Ukraine was uh, in the tri- orthodox tradition and not in the Catholic tradition. And uh, that's a very important part of their uh, identity. Um, in the 1200s, the Mongols coming from what's now Central Asia destroyed Kiev, destroyed Moscow, destroyed so much of, um, uh, of um, eastern Asia, that uh, it took years to rebuild those places. Um, The, um, the, uh, once the Mongols were over with uh, two very strong neighbors at the time, Poland and Lithuania, conquered what is today the Ukraine. So uh, Lithuania was a kingdom in the north and Poland in the west. And they themselves uh, each took parts of what the Ukraine is today. And uh, they actually joined together, the two countries joined together in a union, uh, sort of a commonwealth in the 1500s. But what's important to remember is that Poland and Lithuania are both Catholic countries, uh, whereas the people who are living in the Ukraine were, like I said before, uh, from the Orthodox Christian religion and um, so uh, obviously this led to a, a kind of a desire to, uh, on the part of the rulers to convert um, some of their people to Catholicism and uh, this process did take place over centuries um, whereby a kind of a unique form of Catholicism was adopted whereby the, uh, the the people could pray in uh, Slavic language, but be loyal to the Pope. So this, this sort of formula, we know it from um, the Maronite Christians in Lebanon, and from some other Catholic um, uh, groups in the Middle East, whereby they didn't use Latin as their language of prayer, but the local language, but they kept their loyalty to the Pope. So this is Uh, what happened to um, many parts of of what we would call today the Ukraine, especially the parts of the Ukraine, which were closer to Poland. Um, um, uh, By the way, the conversions really affected mostly the upper class people and the lower class people remained uh, faithful to the Orthodox faith. The people who led the opposition to this sort of uh, Polish Catholic rulership and land ownership were known as the Cossacks. And we know uh, uh, the term Cossack to be somebody who was a kind of a horseman, uh, wild, uh, violent, um, uh, disorganized, um, uh, nomadic. And, And this is a sort of a fairly good description of who these people were. Um, But they were also Ukrainians, and um, they were fighting against the Polish uh, nobility class, against the Polish landlord class, um, to get um, better rights for themselves and for the peasants in the Ukraine, especially the right to sort of maintain the Orthodox faith. Very often in these territories, uh, the Polish uh, landlords were absentee, and the people who ran their estates and collected their taxes were Jews. And so it was uh, an obvious conclusion by the Cossacks that the Jews having uh, no protection whatsoever and uh, representing the landlords were an easy target to uh, to uh, attack, and uh, attack them they did over centuries. And... Um, Uh, the uh, Cossacks not only fought against the Poles, but they also fought against other sort of uh, surrounding people trying to influence the Ukraine. And these people were uh, uh, the Turks and the Tatars. So the Tatars were a uh, Muslim uh, Turkish type of people who lived in the Crimean Peninsula, were very, very strong and powerful and who controlled a lot of southern Ukraine for for centuries. And um, so the Cossacks fought against them and against the Poles, sometimes on one side or another, sometimes against both at the same time. Uh, But that was a kind of a description of what was going on uh, in the Ukraine, you know, from somewhere around the 1500s to to the late 1700s. You know, raids, raids and more raids. Um, The Tatars were people who uh, were uh, in control of the pretty well, the whole north shore of the Black Sea. And what they did was they pulled they pulled off raids into the heart of the Ukraine and captured people and sold them into slavery. And uh, they sold somewhere around 2 million Russian and Ukrainian slaves. Uh, I met. um, uh, sort of a, a kind of a proof of this, when I was in Uzbekistan, and um, we were told that um, some of the people who were living there were descendants of these slaves who were captured and uh, sold in markets by the uh, Tatars. Um, they were only de- they were only defeated in the late 1700s by the Russians, who. You know, uh, in the 1700s, their great period of expansion under Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, they decided to sort of make order in the in the West, and they conquered the territories, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, later developed into the Ukraine. Um, one of the great Ukrainian national heroes, Bogdan Smelnitsky, um, defeated the Poles in 1648, and uh, I remember in my education in Jewish school learning that he was the biggest terrorist in Europe, uh, who uh, carried out pogroms against defenseless Jews all over the um, all over the Ukraine. Uh, and um, he is not known for that in the Ukraine. He's known for being a national hero, for um, achieving a sort of a semi independence of the Ukraine um, from the Polish. Um, uh, the Polish uh, Kingdom, um, uh, but eventually uh, it was he um, he he couldn't stand alone in his uh, sort of battle for we'll call it Ukrainian uh, independence, and he had to join up with the Russians, um, which he did uh, later on. Um, In in the late 1600s, the territory which we call the Ukraine was actually fought over by so many different powers, the the Poles, the Russians, the Tatars, as I said, also the Ottomans and the Cossacks themselves. So um, the Ottomans were, the Ottoman Turks were uh, in charge of um, uh, the areas around the Black Sea and um, they had expanded, of course, from uh, what's today Turkey and moved into what is Romania and Romania borders on the Ukraine. And they had already um, put the Crimean tatters under their jurisdiction. So it was normal that the Ottomans were pushing uh, northward in Europe. As you know, they, they eventually conquered Hungary. Uh, and so, They were sort of surrounding Ukraine almost on two sides. Um, uh, uh, um, At that point though, in in the 1700s, Poland uh, became weakened and uh, Poland was eventually conquered in its entirety by a combination of the Russians, the Austrians and the Germans, and they divided up Poland into three different slices or pieces. So when the Russians took their piece, they took with it uh, almost all of the northern part of the Ukraine and the Austrians took uh, some of the southern part of the Ukraine. And so um, the sort of uh, uh, continuation of occupation of the Ukraine by foreign powers Um, you know, proceeded and continued on, even into the early modern period. Um, It was also the time that the Russian Orthodox Church took over the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And so the sort of metropolitan or the head of the church uh, was in Moscow, and the Ukrainian church had to sort of, uh, you know, look up to them for their guidance. Of course, when Russia took over this part of Poland, the eastern part of Poland, that's when they inherited the millions of Jews who were living there. So uh, prior to the expansion of Russia into uh, the territories that were the Ukraine and Poland, there were almost no Jews living in Russia. And um, when they took over what is today, uh, what is today, Belarus and the Ukraine and part of Lithuania and certainly the whole eastern part of Poland, they sort of inherited all the Jews who were living there. And because their policies were anti-Jewish, they decided to um, confine the Jews to the areas that they were already living in. And they called that area the Pale of Settlement, and Jews were not allowed to move out of that area. So pretty well the whole of Ukraine was in that Pale of Settlement. Um, and that's where during the uh, 1700s uh, and, er, and early 1800s, the, the um, movement of Has- uh, Hasidism or the Hasidic movement got started in those areas at that time. Um, uh, the, when the Russians took over this whole territory, Uh, One of the things that they naturally did was to promote Russian culture and Russian language and to sort of denigrate the Ukrainian language and culture in all the areas that they took over. Um, They also promoted Russian um, settlement in those areas that were the Ukraine. In other words, Russian people from outside of the Ukraine uh, made their way into the Ukraine in order to settle. And uh, at the same time, uh, later on, it gave Ukrainians a chance to move out of the Ukraine into Russia proper to look for better lives and better jobs. Um, Even during the Russian uh, occupation at this time, in other words, we're talking now the 1800s, and um, uh, Poles and Lithuanians were still the landowners and the Jews were still working in the management of their um, estates, and um, the uh, uh, the um, the whole issue of this sort of conflict between Catholics and the Orthodox was still a lively um, a lively uh, sort of instigator of of misrest of uh, unrest and of. Of, of sort of fighting uh, going on in that territory. Um, the Cossacks in 1768, so this is already two so 120 years after Khmelnytsky's massacres, there was another great Cossack revolt and a great massacre of Poles and Jews in Uman of all places. And for those of you who um, know that name Uman, it's the, Gravesite of the uh, Bra- Breslov, Rebbe from Breslov, uh, where to this very day uh, pilgrimages are, are, are undertaken on Rosh Hashanah to um, his gravesite. So, um, you know, in 1768, in that, in that town, in that city, in that area, there was a massacre uh, of thousands of Jews by the Cossacks. Um, the 19th century, uh, came around, and like everywhere else in, the, in, in Eastern Europe or in Central Europe, this idea of nationalism took hold. So nationalism is the idea that uh, people who share certain uh, linguistic values or other values form a, a nation unto themselves. And this, this idea was one which um, was not there all the time. Uh, it was something that grew out of, um, you know, writings and grew out of uh, uh, ideas of peoples who were uh, subjugated by larger empires. So, for example, in Austria, hungary, hungary the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Czechs and Poles and, and Serbians um, uh, developed a kind of a nationalistic identity. The Italians did the same thing in the same period in the 19th century because they were uh, divided up among the different jurisdictions. And um, uh, the Ukrainians at the same time also developed a kind of a national identity and a kind of a stress on the Ukrainian language and and literature and and everything else. Um, uh, They... uh, Uh, So the sort of uh, idea of the Ukrainians as a separate people uh, uh, kind of uh, grew up at the same time as other peoples were thinking the same thing. Um, But many, many, many Ukrainians, hundreds of thousands of them, moved to Russia itself. There was a huge community of Ukrainians in Siberia, like over a quarter of a million, uh, in Central Asia also. Um, because the Trans-Siberian Railway, which opened in 1906, gave people a chance to move uh, for a better life. So let's come to World War I. World War I was a war between um, in Eastern Europe between Russia on the one hand, and the Austro-Germany, uh, uh, the Prussians, and the um, Austro-Hungarians on the other hand. And of course, the Russians won the war, uh, but Ukrainians who were living in the um, Austrian areas fought for the Austrian army, and Ukrainians who were living in uh, what was Russia fought for the Russian army. So they were fighting on both sides of the battle. Um, uh, when the war ended in, in, well, in you know, 1917, the the communists threw out the czars. Uh, Well, the Tsar was overthrown in 1917, and then the communists overthrew that government. But there was a period from 1917 to 1921 where there was a lot of anarchy in Eastern Europe. And lots of different countries were declaring independence and were were trying to develop a separate uh, identity. Um, You know, the Caucasus republics, the Baltic republics, um, all for a very brief time, Uh, or for longer declared their independence. And the Ukraine did the same thing. Um, But they were fighting between all kinds of different groups within the country. Some some in the Ukraine were pro-Russian, some were anti-Russian, some were pro-communist, some were anti-communist. And uh, um, it it took the Soviet Union a a good four years to, to... capture everybody, to put order into place, and to finally settle things down. And that happened, uh, like I said, four years after the revolution, so around 1921-22. And uh, the Ukraine was uh, formally uh, made part of the Soviet Union. So for the very first time, then, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was... uh, declared as a real place, as a real national place, but it was part of the Soviet Union, just like all the other republics were um, at the same time. So, uh, and and Kiev was its capital city. And um, when the Soviet Union got established, then one of the interesting Soviet policies was to um, promote, a kind of a cultural identity of the places that they ruled in order to win the support of the local population. So their job, and they didn't see their job, for example, as to blot out or to erase uh, Armenian identity or Georgian identity or Azerbaijani identity or languages or the Ukrainian uh, language or identity. Their idea was to build them up, not to give them any power, not to not to kind of prepare the road for independence, but to win the support of the people who uh, who um, otherwise might be uh, against communism and against the uh, the Soviet Union as a whole, and so that's what the Soviets did in the Ukraine. Um, but but um, uh, the um, the uh, the times were tough in the 1920s. There were a couple of bad uh, droughts and um, there was this great famine in the Ukraine once Stalin took over power from uh, Lenin. So that happened, Lenin died in 1924. And when Stalin took over, he uh, wanted to make sure that the collectivization, in other words, the the, uh, nationalization of private farms was done uh, completely. And he wasn't interested in production of private farms. He wasn't interested in the idea that private farmers might produce more than um, the collective farms. He wanted to show his power and to uh, collectivize each and every farm, uh, which he did. And any, any opponents were either killed or exiled. Um, and then the second phase was to uh, take all the products that were produced on these farms and bring them away from the Ukraine to uh, where food was needed in, um, in uh, Russia. And uh, it led to a great starvation in the Ukraine in the 1920s. Um, uh, the called Holodomor. Uh, the Ukraine, uh, after the first world war, as I said, became part of the USSR, but some parts of it, the western part, became part of Poland, the southern part became part of Romania, and a small part became actually part of Czechoslovakia. So, um, you know, in a certain sense, uh, the greater Ukraine was divided up among, um, all these places, but especially Poland and and the Soviet Union, sort of divided uh, the Ukraine uh, between them. Um, when the Soviet Revolution took place, the Jews who were living in the Ukraine, by and large, supported the Soviet um, uh, regime because they um, uh, many of the uh, leaders of the of the Ukrainian Communist Party uh, were were Jews who were sent in uh, from other parts of Russia to uh, kind of be the bosses there. And this led to great resentment from the native Ukrainians. Uh, In general, uh, the Jews regarded the Russians as better friends than the Ukrainians were because of the past history of Ukrainian nationalism um, affecting Jews. Um, but, uh, uh, the, um, the, you know, the period of, uh, uh, from the 1880s up to the First World War was a period of great emigration, not only, not only of Jews in Ukraine, but of Ukrainians in general. And, you know, we know that they, those, uh, Ukrainian colonies in Western Canada, Manitoba, especially, and Saskatchewan, um, all came from a period of emigration in the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s because of economic conditions uh, in all of uh, Europe in general. Um, uh, So... um, uh, some people uh, talk about this famine that I was mentioning as a sort of a genocide by other means, uh, especially Ukrainian nationalists today, both in the Ukraine and, and you know, in other places like in Canada. Um, any kind of anti-Soviet Ukrainian nationalism was suppressed uh, by Stalin um, with arrests and killings and exiles especially the, the famous uh, sort of reign of terror of 1937 38 that was a bad one. Um, when uh, in the late 1930s, uh, you might remember, Hitler took power in Germany in um, 1933, and an agreement was made between the, the Nazis and Stalin to divide Poland among them, in other words, Germany would take the western part of Poland, and the Soviet Union would take the eastern part of Poland, and that was called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement. And so um, the uh, the Soviet Union uh, marched into Poland and took over Eastern Poland, and uh, and the Germans declared war on Poland in 1939 and took uh, and took Western Poland. Um, uh, the uh, the, uh, the war, of course, turned as we all know in 1941 when the Soviets decided to, uh, sorry, when the Germans decided to invade the Soviet Union. This was Hitler's biggest mistake, and um, uh, 600,000 Soviet soldiers died, um, you know, fighting the uh, Germans in the first in the first sort of wave of invasion. And uh, the Ukrainians, by and large, fought with the Soviets. But there were some Ukrainians who didn't, who said, you know, the German invasion of the Ukraine is a chance for the Ukraine to become independent. And some of them signed up to uh, fight with the Germans against the Soviets. Many of these people, of course, became collaborators in the extermination of the Jewish community uh, who was living in the Ukraine at a time at that time and one and a half million Jews were exterminated by the Nazis and their Ukrainian helpers uh, in that period following 1941. Um, eventually, even the Ukrainian nationalists turned against the Germans because they were so brutal uh, against um, against the Ukrainian people. and. Um, uh, the um, Germans took many Ukrainians to work as slave laborers, uh, so they lost a lot of the support that they did have at the very beginning. Um, it's estimated that six million Ukrainians died in the uh, Second World War, of which one and a half million were Jews, uh, and uh, the uh, Soviet losses uh, were something like nine million people altogether of which uh, uh, there were many Ukrainians uh, uh, making up part of that. Um, After the war, the whole boundaries changed. You may remember that Poland uh, became not the same country before the war as after the war. So the Soviet Union took over the whole parts of Eastern Poland and they gave to Poland big parts of eastern Germany. So Poland, in a certain sense, moved west. And um, many of the areas that were Poland before the war uh, became part of the Soviet Union and part of the Ukraine. And uh, the whole parts of Germany in the eastern part were evacuated by the Germans, and the Poles took over those places to compensate for their loss in the east. Um, The... um, so the Soviets also exiled populations that they felt were disloyal. So there were somewhere like a half a million Germans living in what is today the Ukraine uh, for uh, since the 1700s, uh, when uh, they were asked to come and settle there by the, uh, uh, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great uh, to provide kind of know-how and modern farming techniques. And these people were exiled uh, by Stalin, as well as he exiled the Crimean Tatars who uh, he felt were a disloyal group and uh, he exiled them also to Central Asia. Um, So uh, the makeup of the Ukraine sort of changed um, uh, in in the 20th century because of all these changes. Um, Stalin died thankfully in 1953, and Khrushchev took over. And Khrushchev himself was a kind of a Ukrainian. And um, he was much more pro-Ukrainian than Stalin was. Um, He reestablished sort of Ukrainian power within the Soviet Union. And uh, in 1954, which was the 300th anniversary of a uh, treaty signed sort of between the Russians and the Ukrainians, he took the Crimean Peninsula and gave it to the Ukraine, which was previously in Russia. Now, the Crimean Peninsula uh, is this key, key location of a peninsula in the northern Black Sea, and uh, there were all, there were only ten percent of the people living there were Ukrainians, uh, and something like seventy percent were Russians. Uh, but he he just took off that piece of land from Russia and gave it to the Ukraine. Uh, Of course, you know, this was the reason why it ended up coming back to Russia uh, under Mr. Putin uh, much, much later on. Um, Also, uh, in this period, um, a huge amount of industrialization was invested into the Ukraine. So in other words, uh, the Ukraine had natural um, uh, resources of, of coal. And so it was decided to put all the steel industry and heavy industry and heavy machinery industry in the Ukraine um, because of that, um, uh, you know, because of those natural um, advantages. And um, so Ukraine became a very strongly industrialized place um, um, in the post uh, Stalin period, you know, starting in the 1950s and even somewhat before in the 1930s. Ukraine became a center of arms production. Um, the uh, Chernobyl uh, nuclear plant was built there. Um, and um, besides Khrushchev, Brezhnev, who also became a leader of the Soviet Union, also originated from the Ukraine. Speaking about Chernobyl, you know, we all remember it how it blew up in 1986 and uh, really uh, and, and Chernobyl, the nuclear plant was sort of located on the border between um, the Ukraine and Belarus. And this uh, accident was one of the forerunners of the breakup of the Soviet Union. So in other words, the people could not be, uh, the accident could be hit, couldn't be hidden from the population and the authority therefore of the government went down when people heard about all of this. And um, the uh, demands for opening up of the country grew. Um, uh, Mr. Gorbachev uh, sort of agreed to that He was trying to hold the Soviet Union together by means of a liberal, a more democratic government. But once the ball got rolling, things all fell apart. And uh, like in other places, um, Uh, There were demonstrations for independence in the Ukraine in the 1990-91 period. There was a referendum held in 1991, and 90% of the people voted for independence. Now, we should realize that the Ukraine, as it was set up, was not 100% Ukrainian um, uh, language people. The Russian-speaking people were a very large minority in the Ukraine. Um, Somewhere around 25% uh, of the people identified themselves as Russians. Uh, Many, many people in the Ukraine, of course, spoke Ukrainian and Russian. Um, Russian was the sort of language of of business, language of of, uh, uh, administration, and Ukrainian was the language especially spoken in the rural areas. Um, uh, by the uh, local people, Uh, even Kiev itself, the capital of Ukraine was uh, maybe 50% Russian speaking and 50% Ukrainian speaking uh, at a certain time. Um, But even so, in this referendum on independence, uh, a good half of the Russian speakers voted for independence of the Ukraine at that time. the first president was a kind of a holdover from the communist era, which is pretty common, Mr. Kravchuk. Um, And uh, in 1991, Russia tried to salvage the breakup of the Soviet Union by creating a kind of what was called the Commonwealth of Independent States. In other words, a union, or at least an economic union of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. In other words, the heartland of the uh, of the Slavic culture in um, Eastern Europe. Um, uh, the, uh, although, uh, at the breakup of the Soviet Union, the standard of living in Ukraine was uh, higher even than that of Russia. When the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Ukraine really suffered a lot because almost all of its economic ties and trade uh, were with Russia and uh, this sort of fell apart when the Soviet Union fell apart. And so they suffered a really severe recession or depression after that. And that's why so many people left the country uh, following independence. Uh, like I said, some 20% of the people left. Um, <clears throat> uh, the um, uh, you, one of the, one of the um, two of the agreements that were made when Ukraine became independent was, one, was that all nuclear weapons that were on their territory, Ukraine would give them up voluntarily. So it's one of the only cases in the world where a country gave up its nuclear weapons, you know, sort of in exchange for nothing. And the other deal that was made was that the Ukraine would um, lease the port of Sebastopol in this Crimea to Russia for 50 years. So Russia not only had a claim on Crimea because almost all the people were Russians there, but there was a formal agreement that the Russian uh, submarine base that was located in Crimea would remain in Russian hands. And uh, so uh, this was another reason why Putin was able to take over the Crimean Peninsula, uh, you know, saying that, well, we already have a nas- internationally agreed rights over there. Remember, Russia does not have any warm water ports being such a huge maritime country. Um, you know, All of its coastline is on the uh, Arctic uh, Circle and also in the uh, Baltic Sea, which freezes over in the winter. And so, um, you know, for as far as a warm water port uh, on the Black Sea, Sebastopol was it. And of course, the Black Sea uh, goes right through the uh, Straits uh, past Istanbul, which is an open waterway and therefore, practically, legally speaking, the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea are part of the same uh, um, structure. And so having a a free port on the Black Sea meant that Russia has access to the Mediterranean and to the rest of the world uh, by ship. Um, The uh, sort of political life in the Ukraine after independence was a sort of a mixture of uh, corruption, uh, rigged elections, democratic elections, uh, changing power between one politician and another, Um, but uh, in general, one where the population um, uh, supported democracy, supported closer ties to to Europe on the one hand, but uh, had to put up with corruption uh, on the other hand. And that that sort of pattern is not just special to Ukraine, but was found everywhere else. Uh, in uh, you know in other places, let's say in, in Eastern Europe too. Um, some of the leaders that were there afterwards, you might remember their names. Uh, 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 Kuchma was a president, corrupt and anti democratic. There were elections in 2004. Uh, Yanukovych versus Yushchenko, and that was an interesting one. Uh, Yanukovych was was supported by Russia and Yushchenko was supported by the kind of anti-Russian Ukrainians. And lo and behold, Yushchenko was poisoned. You might remember pictures of him. Uh, you know, he had this pockmarked face. He was he was poisoned by Russian agents and uh, Yanukovych won the election, uh, but that led to what was called the Orange Revolution. And uh, I think that one of the Uh, motivations of Putin in trying to control or take over or suborn the Ukraine is to eliminate the um, threat of these so-called color revolutions in Russia itself. So the Orange Revolution happened in the Ukraine and in Georgia there was another one I think called the Rose Revolution and um, the uh, uh, in both cases, uh, the, the aim of these revolutions was to get rid of corrupt politicians, corrupt autocratic politicians. And since Putin is a corrupt autocratic politician, and since everybody in Russia knows this, um, and since all of his elections have been rigged, um, his fear is that the people will rise up on the same pattern as they did in the Ukraine and throw them out. Um, Yanukovych, uh, who was the Russian-backed candidate, eventually came back to power in 2010 after Russia cut off gas supplies in 2006 and 2009. This is an important feature of the Ukrainian economy, which is that Ukraine does not have its own supply of oil or gas, uh, but in order to sell gas and oil to Europe, uh, pipelines have to go through the Ukraine from Russia and um, uh, these pipelines also supply the Ukraine itself. So um, when Russia wants to put pressure on the Ukraine, all they have to do is turn off the pipes and um, the Ukraine is left high and dry. Uh, and Russia has repeatedly done this in order to kind of show its power uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, the, uh, the corruption Uh, led to uh, what was called a Euromaidan protest, some big public protests in Kiev in the square, and elections were held in 2014, and an anti-Russian politician won named Poroshenko. Um, This this election win by Poroshenko motivated Putin to um, annex Crimea in 2014. In other words, he just marched in his troops and took it over and he also uh, in the same year um, took over uh, parts of the eastern Ukraine supposedly because the Russian speaking people there were appealing to Putin to come in and take over um, you know because of their uh, status in the Ukraine and Putin obliged them and sent in uh, Russian troops disguised as uh, uh disguised as partisans and um, took over the two areas of eastern Ukraine, which they still control to this very day. Of course, the United Nations voted to uh, condemn this, but you know who cares? Um, and um, the uh, a referendum was held by Putin in the Crimea, which had a ninety-seven percent approval rating, and. Uh, most people in the Ukraine did support this takeover, and I have to tell you that I personally went to visit the Crimea one one time uh, when we were on a cruise in the Black Sea and we spent two days there. And um, the people we spoke to, uh, first of all, there were no Ukrainian flags anywhere to be seen in uh, the Crimea when we were there. And uh, this was before the annexation and um, And most people said, yeah, we would love to have the Russians take over because that's who they felt comfortable with. Um, Also, the standard of living by that time was higher in Russia than in the Ukraine. And so people said, hey, you know, the Russians are promising us pensions and all kinds of other things. And um, so they really did support the takeover in those areas, in in in, in the Crimea. Uh, the other areas that were taken over by Russia, it's hard to say whether the local people supported it or not, but they sure were affected by the warfare, which is uh, continuing even uh, off and on, even in these days. Um, in 2019, there were new elections in, in Ukraine, and of all things, a non-politician was elected. So his only... His only um, his only campaign was, "I am not a corrupt politician because I'm not a politician." In fact, he was a comedian who played the role of president of the Ukraine in a TV series. And shock of shocks, he's Jewish at the same time. Mr. Zelensky, who uh, who you know never sort of hid his Jewishness, uh, even though uh, the Jewish community of Ukraine is a tiny, and I mean tiny. Uh, shadow of what it once was in the 19th century. So many of whom were, you know, emigrated to uh, the rest of the Western world in, in the uh, in the 1800s and up to the First World War. And so many of whom were killed in the uh, Holocaust. And um, the remnant uh, uh, were able to move to Israel once uh, this once they were allowed to do so. So there aren't very many Jews left in Ukraine today. But uh, one of them is the president of the country. Um, and he was hoping that Ukraine would join the European Union by 2024. Uh, Russia, of course, opposed this. And this is another reason for the Russian potential invasion of the Ukraine, which is to stop this, uh, stop this um, uh, alignment with the, the European Union. So uh, the, cr- the crisis that we have today is partly based on the um, desire of the Ukraine to get closer to Europe, which Russia opposes. It's partly a challenge to the U.S. because uh, Biden is perceived as weak by the, um, by the Russian state. And of course, the previous President Trump was in Putin's pocket, so he never had to worry uh, that um, Trump would cause problems for him. Um, uh, the uh, Russians uh, are putting pressure on Ukraine again to in a certain sense insulate themselves from any political pressure coming from inside of Russia for democratic reforms Um, and uh, also the the, uh, I spoke previously about Belarus and how Mr. Uh, Lukashenko was was begging Russia to help him stay in power and Russia did and Russia in essence took over that country. So having taken over Belarus uh, on the one hand, you know, the next logical step is to take over the Ukraine on the other hand and go back to what was once the uh, sort of tripartite union of these uh, of these uh, Eastern European Slavic states. Um, uh, Another point is that the Russia and China are kind of cooperating in, in a certain way to reduce American power in the world, and um, you know uh, this is one way for Russia to sort of uh, put its end of the bargain uh, uh, up. Um, of course, it's a huge risk for Russia if they do invade because the West could always retaliate. It also pushes the uh, the neighbors of um, Russia more against Russia and more uh, toward the hands of the West, especially in the Baltic states. Uh, it also kind of energizes, uh, let's say, the United States to do some sort of counter actions, which could mean um, uh, sanctions. It could mean sending troops to Poland. Uh, it could mean sending troops to the Baltic republics, uh, etc., Uh, Needless to say, the Ukrainians would fight back as hard as they can, so there would be losses and casualties uh, to the Russians as well. Um, But once you get to a certain point, it's like if you back down now, you know, Putin looks weak. If he invades, well, he looks strong until things go badly, and then that's a big risk. Uh, Russia could also cut the oil and gas shipments that they're passing through the Ukraine, but their customers are mainly in Europe. And now that oil and gas prices are so high in the world, as you know, um, Russia needs every dollar it can get because it basically has nothing else to export. So uh, there's always a danger somehow that um, if the, uh, uh, you know, if oil and gas gets cut off because of this war, Russia will lose uh, most of the money coming into the country. Um, um, so, um, uh, you know, those are some of the considerations in, uh, in that. Uh, the other uh, consideration is that, again, on the oil and gas subject, on the gas subject, Russia just finished building this pipeline that goes directly from Russia to Germany. And if Russia invades the Ukraine, uh, Germany can say no, we're not going to allow the pipeline to operate, and the Russians sunk billions of dollars into you know into that investment, and could end up um, with a, a white elephant. As it is, the U.S. has been pressuring Germany not to allow the pipeline to open, but on the other hand, uh, Germany says, look, uh, we need the gas, and um, you know we have to buy it somehow, and if we buy it directly from Russia in this way rather than buying it from Russia, having been shipped through Poland, Poland or, or through um, Belarus, what's the difference? It's still Russian gas. So these are some of the issues surrounding this whole um, uh, Ukrainian uh, crisis, we'll call it. And I'll just go back to the theme of saying that Ukraine in a certain sense, is a is a country, and in another sense, it's been part of Russia so long that um, Russia feels that, uh, you know, they justified in sort of uh, reincorporating the Ukraine as part of itself because the Ukraine is an artificial entity, uh, to, you know, to start with, and so that's some of the some of the um, issues regarding that. I'm going to stop and see about any questions and then maybe I'll speak for five minutes about uh, my second subject, which was uh, also a subject of this week, which has to do with um, the uh, raising the, uh, the interest rates in the, the Federal Reserve for the first time in many, many years. So uh, let's see if you have any questions or comments about the Ukraine and then I'll speak for five minutes about something else.
0: Hi, Mr. Dwaskin. There's nobody yet. Okay. Uh, I don't see anybody yet. But you can continue uh, if you want to talk about whatever for the next 10, 15 minutes.
1: Okay. So, you know, um, all of you, well, some of you, some of you who have nothing else better to do, uh, look at the uh, ticker tapes in the stock markets. Uh, Many of us are retired and some of us have some of our savings tied up in that. And whether you do or you don't, uh, indirectly, um, the stock market affects everyone because all our pension plans and Quebec government's pension uh, money and Canadian government's pension money are all invested in the stock market anyway. And there have been huge fluctuations over the last week. And these fluctuations have to do partly with the war possibility in the Ukraine, but um, partly because of the fear of inflation and higher interest rates. And so we all know that the interest, the inflation figures were published uh, in this last month and inflation went up by 7% in the U S and 5% in Canada, meaning, you know, things cost that much more from one year over to the next year. And, um, once it's felt that inflation is sort of endemic, in other words, it's not a temporary uh, fluctuation caused by COVID or caused by uh, a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal or you know, some other uh, extraneous issues like that, once, once it's part of the economy, it's in the interest of the countries to limit it and control it because they don't want prices to keep going higher and higher Uh, It it affects people on fixed incomes for sure, especially seniors who are strong voters. Um, It affects the demand for higher uh, wages uh, by workers who want to be able to pay for uh, what they buy. Uh, But higher wages in themselves then cause more inflation because they become a cost of production and the end product has to be, uh, prices have to be increased in order to reflect those Increase wages, which are increased because of inflation to start with. So, in other words, it's a sort of a vicious circle, uh, which, uh, I- if uncontrolled, can lead to uh, to uh, you know quite a bad situation. Um, <clears throat> so, the idea of raising interest rates is a kind of an indirect an indirect control on inflation. It's not a direct control, but an indirect control. So, in other words, if you raise the cost of borrowing. Uh, That means that a car will be more expensive. That means a house will be more expensive. That means that other big purchases would be more expensive. And in a certain sense, um, it raises their price, but in another sense, it reduces demand. So people, if they can't afford uh, to buy a big house, they'll buy a smaller house. If they can't afford to buy an expensive car, they'll buy a cheaper car, uh, et cetera. So um, that means that the demand will go down and when demand goes down, of course, prices go down. Now this whole uh, scenario takes time to develop and this is the problem, the time that it takes. But in in the meantime, the stock market says, well, if interest rates are gonna go up, what that actually means is not only will demand go down for the companies that are on the stock exchange, But people who have money to invest, if they can make a sure interest investment in a fixed income, in a fixed security, in other words, buying a bond or buying a treasury note or buying some other piece of paper that pays a higher interest, why risk your money in the stock market? So people will take their money out of the stock market and put it into fixed income. And when they do that, of course, the stock prices go down also because there is this imbalance between supply and demand. Um, so uh, raising rates, raising rate, in, raising interest rates in general correlates with a stock market going down in general. Um, the problem is, of course, that um, you cannot, on a dime, snap your fingers and say, "Oh, I want the direction of inflation to, to change." It doesn't happen that way. And raising interest rates is not something that's done quickly because otherwise it will be a too, uh, too big shock to the market. So even though the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and the Canadian, um, um, the Canadian uh, Bank of Canada are talking about raising the interest rates only by a quarter or a half, it's enough to kind of shake up the market to say, well, what's going to happen in the future? They're going to keep on doing this and therefore we're, we're, we're not in an advantageous uh, position. But it's a position that has to be done because so much money has been pumped into the uh, national economies because of COVID. You know, the, the, the federal government gave so much money in SERB and in uh, other payments. The United States poured a trillion dollars into the economy to boost the economy and keep people going uh, at a time that they were unemployed. Uh, that all of that money creates so much demand, and that demand uh, for articles leads to higher prices. Um, uh, another reason for raising interest rates at the same time is that unemployment is low. So in other words, if unemployment were high, um, uh, raising interest rates might make things more expensive and um, might lead to um, uh places closing down because they can't sell goods for so much money uh, but when unemployment is low uh, the risk of, um, of uh, layoffs uh, becomes much less important and in fact um, uh, the fact that unemployment is so low in and of itself leads to higher prices because wages as we all know are being pushed up and so that leads to more inflation so It's a perfect time for banks to try to cool things down a little bit, Uh, by banks, I mean the uh, national government banks, uh, to cool things down for a bit, to sort of slow the economy a little bit, uh, to um, uh, bring things back into balance. Uh, There used to be, and I mean, uh, this kind of low interest rate um, uh, climate we've been in has been sort of going for some 20 odd years. But. All of us who are of a certain age remember what the 1980s were like when prices were going up uh, you know by seven, eight, nine percent a year, and the interest rates you know to borrow money from a mortgage was like 17 and 18 percent, and you could get easily a 10 percent and 12 percent at the bank on, on sort of deposits. So those years are long past us, and and, and you know, there is a fear. That some of that might be coming back, but uh, you know we're at such a low interest rate, practically zero uh, interest rate. In fact, uh, in some European countries, banks were charging customers to put their money in the bank. So we have a long way before you know to go to the um, to the opposite direction. But it is a, a change, and um, the stock market does not like those kind of changes, and that's why the volatility is there. Added on to the uncertainty about a war in Europe because of this Russian invasion. And there you have an explanation for the, um, the stock market, uh, you know, dropping a thousand points yesterday and then coming right back up again. And today it's down again. So uh, that's a kind of just a kind of a thumbnail sketch of the, uh, the economic uh, happenings of the week. And um, just to tell you that if the banks do raise their interest rates, it will be the first time in uh, trying to remember how many years. It's at least three years, at least. I think it goes back farther than that when rates have been going up, because they've been just going down and down and down and down. Uh, as you know, or maybe some of you know that you know people were borrowing money on a mortgage for under 3%. Uh, you know, 2% even. And, uh, you know, for, for, for us people who were in our 70s or 80s or 60s, um, thinking of getting a mortgage for 2% was unthinkable in the 1980s and 90s um, when, when we were in our house buying times or 70s. And, um, you know, that's what it's been now for quite a while. So things are starting to, to move up and hopefully they won't move up that much. So that's um, you know a quick a quick summary about about uh, you know the stock market and the interest rates going up this week. We have to see. You know it might be that the central banks will say, you know what, we're still not confident enough. We're still a little bit insecure, and maybe we'll hold off interest rate increases until March. I think that seems to be also a likely scenario that they will wait until that time. Okay, so any comments, questions? I'm here.
0: I don't see any yet, Mr. Dwoskin, but I just put in the chat for them to raise their hands or uh, use the Q and A section okay. of Zoom to ask the questions. So we'll just wait a minute or two and see if anyone. Yeah, has for sure,
1: for sure, for sure, for sure. I have to tell, uh, you know, of course, some of you know that I'm in Florida now and we've had, uh, yesterday morning it was seven degrees uh, in uh, temperature and it was so cold that the ocean, the ocean had mist on it. Like, you know, you see mist from, uh, you know, from a lake or mist from Beaver Lake when it gets cold and it's starting to freeze, all that mist comes up. So the whole ocean was just covered in mist because of the cold uh, air temperatures. Um, uh, clashing with the warm water temperature. That's really quite something to see. And I just would like to repeat again that if you've got any suggested subjects or, or um, uh, topics, uh, you know, forward them to myself or forward them to um, Angela and she'll forward them to me and I'll be glad to uh, speak about them. So, uh, you know, I don't want to leave any need un- unfilled.
0: I don't see anything, Mr. Dwoskin. Okay.
1: All right. So, unfortunately, uh, oh, I'm, you know, I'm glad we have an audience. Um, you know, uh, it's such a it's such a crazy time. That's just all I can say. It's just such a crazy time. But you know, I'm you know maybe uh, we haven't spoken about COVID much today, but you know, it's always it's probably the main topic of the news. Uh, every single week, and we'll circle back around to it uh, when there's something interesting to talk about. But I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and I want to thank you, uh, Angela, for hosting, and we'll see you all next week.
0: Thank you, Mr. dwatskin and thank you to everyone listening in over the telephone and on Zoom, and we shall all see you next week at 2 p.m. Bye-bye. Bye.